Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Ireland. His destiny was marked out. He was to expand and maintain Plantagenet power in the wild Irish West. He was the first Plantagenet prince to set foot in Ireland since King John. John of Gaunt, meanwhile, was raised to Duke of Lancaster to replace Henry of Gromont, Edward's friend and general who had died, probably of plague, in 1361. Gaunt had married Gromont's daughter Blanche of Lancaster at Reading Abbey in 1359, and on his father-in-law's death he had inherited in its entirety one of the largest and most important networks of estates in England. He thus brought back into the immediate royal family the inheritance of Edward II's nemesis, Thomas of Lancaster, which played a vital role in maintaining order and security in the north of England. Edward III had demanded on numerous occasions during the 1350s and 1360s that his third son be recognised as heir to King David II of Scotland, who had been released from prison in 1357, but struggled beneath the burden of his onerous ransom obligations. Whether the demand was posturing at the negotiation table, a mere feint to induce the Scots to pay their king's ransom is debatable, but early in the 1360s it seemed that if the Black Prince took care of Aquitaine and Lionel guided policy in Ireland, John of Gaunt was to be groomed for a role that would see him overseeing Scottish defence and affairs. With Thomas of Woodstock little more than an infant, that left just Edmund Langley. The King's fourth son was earmarked for one of the most important spheres of foreign policy, Flanders and the Low Countries. In November 1361, when the Duke of Burgundy died, he left as his widow a twelve-year-old girl, Margaret, the daughter of Louis of Mal, Count of Flanders. She was heiress to the counties of Nevers, Flanders, Rethel, Burgundy and Artois, as well as the duchies of Brabant and Lambourg. Together these lands formed a massive, potentially independent power block that combined under the leadership of a single ruler might be used to counterbalance the might of the French crown. With its rich trading towns, Flanders offered a treasure trove for whoever could acquire it. As soon as the Duke of Burgundy's death was known, Edward began to negotiate in secret for Margaret's marriage to his son Edmund. Like the Black Prince and Joan of Kent, Edmund and Margaret were related within the prohibited bounds of consanguinity, having a common ancestor in Philip IV of France. This made matters complicated because the marriage would require permission from Pope Urban V, a Frenchman based at Avignon, who could not be relied on to favour English interests over those of the King of France. But Edward III was not put off by the challenge. He made the twenty-one-year-old Edmund Earl of Cambridge, and awarded him control over the northern French counties of Pontieu and Calais to give him a standing interest in the region, and embarked on a diplomatic campaign of huge energy and cunning that occupied much of his time and energy. Thus Edward celebrated his fiftieth birthday, with great laws, parliamentary gifts, family ennoblement, and the launch of a dynastic plan for his large, if diminished, brood. He appeared to anticipate and desire territorial expansion on the part of each of his four mature sons, without offering the potential to bring them into conflict with one another, 
a problem that had blighted the final decades of Henry II's reign. If Edward III learned anything from his reading of William of Newburgh's histories, it was that eagle chicks left in the same nest would soon come to vicious fighting. And indeed, the decades that followed would prove that his children had far more brotherly loyalty than Henry's. Unfortunately, while fraternal relations were strong, the streak of good luck Edward had enjoyed in the 1350s was about to run out. This audiobook is continued on Disc 15. The Plantagenets by Dan Jones Continued Disc 15 Unraveling Fortunes The year 1369 was very bleak for Edward III and his family. It was a year of almost unrelenting failure and loss, as death followed death, sickness piled upon sickness, and everything that had shone with such glory in the 1350s suddenly seemed to be fading away. The king and queen spent much of their time in the 1360s with their combined household at their hunting lodges in the New Forest, avoiding Westminster and slowly descending into old age. Edward took solace in the comforts of his wife's servant Alice Perrers, a girl in her early twenties with a seductive voice and a sharp eye for advancement. She bore the king his first illegitimate child in 1364, and used her position as his mistress to carve out more privileges for herself at court. Edward used his time at home wisely. He continued to host great state occasions, as he did in 1364, when the kings of Scotland, France, and Cyprus were all entertained in London at once. He oversaw a programme of domestic reforms, as new legislation was passed to empower justices of the peace to administer law and order in the shires. Parliaments also passed sumptuary statutes, which regulated what different ranks of society could wear, and forbade the lower orders from wearing more luxurious types of furs, cloaks, or shoes. The efforts to settle the Plantagenet Empire on the surviving royal children in a coherent way continued. Yet against all this ran a current of decay. Careful though his plans were, spending the 1360s at far greater ease had not left Edward rested. From the middle of the decade his health was declining. In 1364 John II of France died at John of Gaunt's Savoy Palace, just outside the walls of London. Repayments on John's massive ransom ceased, and the Kingdom of France had a chance to rally under the leadership of a new Valois king, Charles V. The new king was determined to topple the English, and was fortunate enough to find a highly skilled general to assist him. Bertrand du Guesclin was a veteran of the protracted wars of Breton succession. He had fought against the English for more than two decades, facing down no lesser men than Henry of Gromont, Duke of Lancaster. Over time he became the scourge of the English, and a master of guerrilla tactics and attritional campaigning, grinding the life out of English invading armies. The first theatre in which war resumed was not northern France or Aquitaine, where the English had enjoyed so much recent success. Instead, the French managed to draw England, through the ambitions of the Black Prince, into a complex and sapping proxy war fought in the hot, diseased-ravaged territories of Iberia. A struggle for the Castilian throne erupted between two sons of Alfonso XI, the bastard Henry of Trastamara, and the incumbent king, his half-brother Pedro the Cruel. The chronicler Thomas Walsingham described Pedro as a vile evildoer and a tyrant, and his name in the Spanish peninsula was synonymous with cruelty and bloodshed. Pedro had inherited the throne from his father in 1350, and switched his realm's allegiance from its long-standing alliance with France to England, which he had begun to court in 1362. When Charles V inherited the French throne, it suited him well to punish the Castilian king for his abandonment. Taking on Pedro would supply him with an opportunity to reclaim some military initiative— Perhaps more important, it offered the hope that the many free companies of violent mercenaries that had been roaming and terrorizing the French countryside would now be drawn away to a new and profitable war in the south. Their presence in France, particularly around Brittany, Normandy, and the Loire Valley, had for years been a source of disorder. 
Independent bands of discharged soldiers took control of castles, manors, and churches, which they used as bases for a military occupation of the surrounding area. They stole, murdered, burned, and raped with abandon. Then, once an area had been reduced to destitution, they moved on to inflict misery on the next. Their presence was viewed by many Frenchmen as a punishment sent from God. It was viewed by the new king as an impediment to any sort of stable government. And so, when an opportunity presented itself, Charles threw his support behind Henry of Trastamara, sponsoring a bid to depose Pedro. In 1366 this drove the king out of Castile and up into the arms of the Black Prince, who met him in the border town of Bayonne. The prince received Pedro as a friend, and promptly engaged England in the new war. As was usual with the Edwardian Wars, fighting for the throne of Castile proved wildly expensive. The Black Prince had been levying a series of somewhat unpopular fouage, hearth taxes, on Aquitaine since his arrival in 1363, which did nothing for the unity of his new duchy and the warmth with which his rule was received. In 1366 he boldly agreed to shoulder the entire cost of invading Pedro's kingdom and expelling the French. In return, Pedro gave over his two daughters, Constance and Isabella, as collateral against repayment of the £276,000 expedition. The girls later married the Black Prince's brothers John of Gaunt and Edmund of Langley, respectively. But the notion that a country as small and poor as Castile would ever have the means to cover its share of the costs of war should have struck the prince as improbable. The campaign started well. On January 6, 1367, as the army was mustering, Princess Joan gave birth to Edward's second son. His first, Edward, was born in 1365. The boy was born in Bordeaux, and named Richard after the Lionheart, Eleanor of Aquitaine's most successful son. His baptism was attended by what the Canterbury chronicler William Thorne described as three magi, King Pedro, King James IV of Majorca, and King Richard of Armenia. Three kings at court and a child born on Twelfth Night, these were seen as signs that the baby boy was marked out for great things. It was an auspicious way for his father to start on a campaigning season. With his brother John of Gaunt alongside him, Prince Edward led an army of Gascon subjects and paid mercenaries over the Pyrenees, down past Logroño to the banks of the river Najeria, where Henry of Trastamara was waiting. The Black Prince was at the height of his military powers, and at Najera he was aided by Henry, who ignored a letter from Charles V explicitly warning him of the dangers of standing to fight the English. Its army, wrote the French king, included the flower of the chivalry of the world. Indeed it did. Sir John Chandos, Stephen Cussington, and the Poitevin nobleman Guichard d'Angle were formidable captains, and during the descent from the Pyrenees the Black Prince knighted two hundred soldiers among his ranks. When these knights, old and new, emerged from the mountains to the plains near the town of Nahera, Henry of Trastamara panicked. Instead of avoiding battle, he took up defensive positions against the river and prepared to engage, the one thing Charles V had explicitly warned him to avoid. Early in the morning of April 3rd, English divisions surprised Franco-Castilian forces under Henry and Du Guesclin, attacking them on the left flank and causing chaos. Under a now-familiar English assault of heavy longbow fire and fierce attacks by dismounted men-at-arms, the Franco-Castilian force was routed and then driven back to the river by cavalry charges. At least 5,000 men were slaughtered or drowned. Henry fled for his life, but Du Guesclin was captured, along with almost every other nobleman on the Franco-Castilian side. Tactically, it was the best of Prince Edward's victories, even if the glittering cast of hostages did not quite reach the heights of those collected at Poitiers in 1356. The Black Prince had once again shown himself to be agile, ruthless, and brave in the thick of battle. But if the military victory was complete and glorious, the political and personal consequences of Nahara were little short of catastrophic. Although he had retrieved his throne, Pedro the Cruel was unable to raise the money to pay back his saviour. This left Prince Edward effectively bankrupt, and now under extreme pressure from the Gascon lords who demanded their wages. 
even with the sale of Pedro's jewels and the ransoms of valuable hostages taken at Nahera, there was no way the costs of war could be met. Worse yet, in the heat of the Spanish summer, infection and disease swept through the English ranks. The Black Death was not at its most severe in 1367, but Edward's soldiers suffered from other illnesses, including widespread bouts of dysentery, which accompanied them as they withdrew back to Bordeaux. The great were afflicted as harshly as the poor. Sometime around the Battle of Nahera, the Black Prince contracted a serious disease, possibly dysentery, but perhaps malaria or more likely dropsy, that lingered and confined him to bed for long stretches for the rest of his life. When he returned to Gascony, a preacher gave a sermon comparing him to the Son of God. No one should flatter even the greatest prince to his face like that, Edward later reflected as sickness racked his body. Fortune may strike him down at any moment, and all his famous deeds will then be forgotten and reduced to nothing. After the Nahera campaign, the Black Prince was never the same again. The dual consequences of his broken health and bankruptcy were disastrous for the government of Aquitaine and for the broader English position in France. Pedro of Castile had kept his throne, but he would not pay a penny for this privilege. Although hostages like Du Guesclin realized valuable ransoms, they were but a tiny fraction of the overall debt. Prince Edward's only solution was to levy further harsh taxes on Aquitaine. These antagonized the local lords, and in 1368 they appealed against his rule to Charles V as Sovereign Lord of the Duke and the whole Duchy of Aquitaine. The appeals were a none-too-subtle request for the French king to strike up war against the English in France once again. Charles required little encouragement. In late 1368 French troops massed on the borders of Aquitaine. By the spring of 1369 hundreds of towns had joined the appeal against Plantagenet rule, and large areas of the principality were overrun. Meanwhile in Castile Henry of Trastamara regrouped. In March 1369 he murdered his half-brother Pedro in a tent with a dagger. Soon afterward he signed a treaty with Charles providing for a large war fleet to sail on the Gascon coast. Panic spread not only around the coastal towns of Gascony, but up to southern England, where a new threat to the Channel was once again perceived. The futility of the Castilian campaign was now painfully exposed. Prince Edward was too sick to regroup and defend his lands against the resurgent French. By 1370 he was making preparations to return with his wife and children, and what was left of his army, to England. He came back a broken man in January 1371. His family's fortunes had not fared well in his absence. Lionel of Antwerp, the Duke of Clarence, had found his task in Ireland as arduous as had every prince who had attempted to bring English customs and order to the region before him. His first wife, Elizabeth de Burgh, had died in 1363, leaving him with a daughter, Philippa. By 1366 he had abandoned the job of managing Ireland as a lost cause. Edward III had arranged a new marriage, a purely mercenary arrangement, to the thirteen-year-old Violante Visconti, a Pavian heiress and member of the famous Visconti dynasty, the warlike lords of Milan and scourge of their neighbouring Italian city-states. Lionel and Violante had a magnificent marriage before the doors of Milan Cathedral, and celebrated in great style for several months afterward. The poet Petrarch was said to have been a guest at one great dinner given by the couple. But the high living proved fatal to Lionel. Within months of the marriage he had become sick, and on October 17, 1368, at Alba in Piedmont, he died. His body was eventually returned to England for burial at Clare Priory in Suffolk. Queen Philippa, too, was declining. She dislocated her shoulder in a hunting accident in 1357 and never fully recovered. From 1365 on she could not move about easily, and by 1367 she was relying on litter and barge to travel. On August 15, 1369, she died, with Edward and their teenage son Thomas of Woodstock by her side. The king held her hand and wept bitter tears. The girl, who had arrived in England four days after Edward II's funeral, 
had grown up to see her husband and their family rise from puppets of the Mortimer Isabella regime to become Europe's most feared dynasty. She had lived a fabulously rich and lavish lifestyle. Froissart, whom she patronized and knew well, claimed in his history that her dying wish to the king was that he settle her debts to foreign merchants. Nevertheless, she was highly regarded throughout England as a literate, pious, stable, and well-grounded figure who had exerted considerable influence for the good on her husband and sons. She was admirably connected to the noble families of Europe, and brought glamour and chivalry to the court with foreign knights, whom she integrated into English society with unprecedented success. Thomas Walsingham called her a most noble woman and most constant lover of the English. Philippa had been a great companion to her husband and a dutiful mother to their many children. Her loss left Edward distraught. The king was in poor health himself. From the middle of the decade he had begun to rely ever more heavily on expensive surgeons and doctors, the lot of a man in his sixth decade of life. As his family and friends dropped away around him, Edward began to sink into a closed household life. He was outliving the era of his greatest victories. Yet the time had come to fight once more. Indeed, against the onslaughts of Charles V, war was the only response that Edward knew how to give. In a Parliament of 1369, the records state, It was agreed by all the prelates and magnates and commons of the shires of England, with the assent of the whole Parliament, that the King of England should resume the name of King of England and of France, as he held it before the peace. Peace with France was formally abandoned. The sickly, grieving Edward had somehow, with the help of his beleaguered eldest son, to raise his country for a new round of war. THE GOOD PARLIAMENT The chapter-house of Westminster Abbey filled with purposeful occupants. It was April 29, 1376, the second day of Parliament. For three weeks the majority of England's magnates had been making their way to Westminster from every corner of England to sit in their capacity as the parliamentary lords. They were joined by men of the shires, knights, and gentry who now filled the chapter-house as the parliamentary commons. The previous day all of Parliament had met together. The ailing king had come up from Havering to attend the opening ceremony, but that was the last they would see of him. John of Gaunt represented him for the rest of the proceedings, sitting with the other lords in the painted chamber at Westminster Palace. The Commons took their place at the Abbey Chapter House, a large octagonal stone building, where the monks sat every day to pray, read, and discuss a chapter of the Rule of St. Benedict. The chapter house was a relic of Henry III's extensive reworking of Westminster Abbey in the troubled 1250s, building work undertaken when his brother-in-law Simon de Montfort had done so much damage to Plantagenet rule in the name of reform. It was a magnificent building. The floor was tiled with figures of kings and queens, the Plantagenet royal arms, and an inscription proclaiming the beauty of the chapter house and the munificence of its royal builder. As a rose is the flower of flowers, so this is the house of houses, which King Henry, friend of Christ and the Holy Trinity, dedicated. Now King Edward's commons tramped across the tile-paved floor, and took their seats on the tiers of stone steps that followed the walls. Above their heads light poured through stained-glass windows decorated with heraldic symbols intended to remind all who saw them of the power of Plantagenet kingship. But the commons had not come to venerate royal history. They came to summon the spirit of de Montfort and call upon their king to correct his stricken country. The years that followed the resumption of war between England and France had seen indignity after indignity heaped upon the realm. No one could ignore it. Militarily there had been a catalogue of disasters. In the opening period of the new war the English sought to carry on where they had left off in 1359, but they ran into a more forthright enemy, a lack of leadership, and a chronic shortage of good luck. A chevauchée under the veteran knight and freebooter extraordinaire Sir Robert Knowles in 1370 ran disastrously short of cash, 
and was disbanded six months into a proposed two-year campaign. That same year the ailing Black Prince was joined by his brothers, John of Gaunt and Edmund Earl of Cambridge, as he tried to stem French attacks over the borders of Aquitaine. It was a futile effort. There was no love for English lordship, and city after city simply opened its gates to the French when they arrived. In mid-September 1370, when Limoges surrendered to the Duke of Berry, the Black Prince took violent revenge, sacking and burning the town as punishment. Froissart may have embroidered his account and exaggerated the number of deaths by some tenfold, but he captured the horror of the sack. The Prince, the Duke of Lancaster, the Earl of Cambridge, the Earl of Pembroke, Sir Guy Chardangle, and the rest entered the city on foot, with their companies and their hordes of hangers-on. All of them were equipped for evil. It was heart-rending to see the inhabitants throwing themselves to the ground as he passed, crying out, Mercy, noble lord, mercy! He was so enraged that he heard them not. No one listened to their appeals as the invaders ran through with their swords everyone they found in their way. Three thousand people, men, women, and children, died on that day, and the looting did not stop until the whole city was stripped and left in flames. It was a pathetic sight, the Black Prince carried around on a litter, commanding the deaths of innocent people in a fruitless, spiteful revenge. This sorry massacre was his last significant contribution to the war. By 1371, Prince Edward, a broken man too ill to make any more contributions to war or government, was back in England. Two attempts were made the following year to invade Aquitaine by sea. One fleet under the Earl of Pembroke was captured. Another, departing from Calais under the King, was forced back to port by adverse winds. It was the last campaign the king attempted to lead in person. When it failed, he retreated into seclusion, his mind and body faltering. The Principality of Aquitaine had shrunk to little more than a narrow strip of English territory along the coast. The war effort and the realm were now under the effective command of John of Gaunt, who was in no sense the military equal of his father or eldest brother. In Brittany, the Anglophile Duke John de Montfort was forced out of his own land into exile at Edward's court. A chevauchée carried out under Gaunt's personal command in 1373 was thwarted by the Fabian strategy of the French, who refused to give battle, allowing the English to wear themselves out. The Channel teemed with pirates. For many, particularly London's super-rich wool traders, the threat to shipping routes had become so acute that they were chartering private fleets in self-defence. The English claim to the French throne was as hollow a legal fiction as it had been at any time since the 1340s. All that was left was to sue for peace. A year-long truce was agreed to at Bruges in 1375. The commons that sat in the chapter-house were as familiar with these failures as everyone else in the realm— after all, it was to the commons that repeated requests for taxation to fund the fruitless campaigns had been addressed. The Anonymal Chronicler records that when the Parliament began, the Chancellor, Sir John Nivett, described how the realm of England was in peril and on the point of being destroyed by its adversaries, wherefore Sir John asked on the King's behalf aid and succour against his enemies. The King, he said, wanted a tax of a tenth from the clergy and a fifteenth from the laity. The truce made at Bruges would run out within a year, and fighting must resume. It was a familiar story. But foreign failures were only a part of it. There was a growing sense that the assertive, charismatic kingship of Edward's reign was giving way to a power vacuum. Little by little all the joyful and blessed things, good fortune and prosperity, decreased and misshaped, wrote the chronicler Thomas Walsingham later. The king and his eldest son were sickly and incapacitated. Edward's household had ceased to be a centre for chivalry, and was peopled instead by rapacious hangers-on, none more despised than Alice Perrers, the king's mistress. She had scandalised public opinion the previous year, when she had ridden from the Tower of London to a tournament at Smithfield, dressed as the Lady of the Sun, arrayed in magnificent finery, all of it purchased by the aged king. Meanwhile, in the localities, there was a developing crisis of law and order. Divisions erupted between some of the leading magnates. 
The bishops were unhappy, as John of Gaunt had agreed in exchange for papal mediation at the Peace of Bruges in 1375 to allow papal taxation of the English clergy for the first time since the 1340s. Corruption abounded. To raise quick cash from Italian merchants, licenses were being sold to avoid the Calais staple, the designated marketplace for trading English wool, where taxes were applied by the government. Other merchants were either loaning the government money at extortionate interest rates, or else buying up government debt at discounted rates and cashing it in, a practice that provided short-term liquidity to the crown, but allowed profiteering among the wealthy. London seized with tensions between factions of merchant guilds and foreign traders. Government was collapsing both at the centre and in the localities. It was a time of crisis. Thus, when the commons met, they were in a restive mood. Various interest groups, merchants, knights, county gentry, shared a common sense that it was their duty to counsel and correct the king and his government. They knew they had the power to do so, for without their grant of funds, war could not continue. They began by promising oaths of mutual support in the chapter-house, after which they presented their grievances about corruption and misgovernment in a single lengthy petition. Then they elected as their speaker Sir Peter de la Mer, the steward of the Earl of March. During the ten weeks in which Parliament sat in session, the longest Parliament that had ever been held, they put forward a remarkable series of reforms and legal processes aimed at reforming royal government and restraining those they felt were corrupting it. Almost every day between the opening of what became known as the Good Parliament on April 28th and its dissolution on July 10th, 1376, brought forward shocks to the realm. De la Mer was a prominent member of the Hertfordshire Knightly class, who had served as sheriff for the county and had raised troops for the Earl of March during a campaign to Ireland in 1373. He was articulate, courageous, politically astute, and well-connected with the Lords in Parliament. And it was to the Lords, led by John of Gaunt, that de la Mer presented the Commons' long list of grievances in early May, with a request that a committee of twelve lords be established to meet with their representatives to discuss means by which the realm might be repaired. The bargaining tool that de la Mer wielded throughout the good Parliament was an old one. Without reform, he repeatedly and consistently told John of Gaunt and the committee of the lords, there could be no grant of taxation. But in pressing for a direct involvement in the detail of reform, De la Mer and the Commons in 1376 occupied a more central role in government than had ever been achieved in the past. In 1341, during the last serious political crisis, the debate had been played out between the Lords and the King, while the Commons played only a very minor role in the background. In 1376 they came directly to the fore. Given the urgent need of the Crown to refinance the war before the Treaty of Bruges expired, there was little that Gaunt could do but listen. He heard a chorus of complaints about royal policy, centering on the corrupt activities of a number of people close to the increasingly senile king. After lengthy deliberations, formal accusations were made in full Parliament against three in particular. Lord Latimer, a veteran soldier serving as Chamberlain of the King's household, Richard Lyons, a wealthy merchant and royal counsellor who had advanced a great deal of money to the crown, and the king's mistress Alice Perrers, who had amassed land, wardships, and jewels that had belonged to Queen Philippa, and whose bewitching grasp on the king was such that Thomas Walsingham wrote that she had such power and eminence in those days that no one dared to prosecute a claim against her. The first two were denounced for financial corruption and avoiding the Calais staple, while the Commons demanded that Alice Perrers be removed from the king's company. By the end of May more accusations had been levelled against Lord Neville, steward of the royal household, and three more merchants. John of Gaunt could do little in the face of such serious accusations other than play for time. He adjourned Parliament briefly and let his father know that serious problems were brewing and that many of those in the royal household were about to be arrested. According to the Anonymal Chronicle, the Duke sent certain lords to announce to Edward the advice of the commons and the assent of the lords that he should be counselled to banish from his presence those who were neither good nor profitable, and the king benignly told the lords that he wished entirely to do what would be for the profit of the realm, 
and that he would willingly act by their advice and good ordinance. It was a remarkably timid response. The lion that had roared in 1341 was reduced to a mouse. All those accused by the Commons were brought to trial before Parliament in June 1376. When Peter de la Mer was asked who brought charges against the accused, he replied that they did so in common. Thus the process of impeachment before Parliament was born. Latimer was accused of a whole compendium of crimes in Brittany, including extorting money from the king and neglecting the Dutch's defence. He was also accused of embezzlement of war finance on a grand scale, along with many other crimes. He was convicted and imprisoned. Lord Neville was dismissed, Lyons forfeited goods and land, and Alice Perrers was told to stay away from court at the risk of banishment, although within months she had been pardoned and returned to Edward's side. A council of nine was appointed to advise the king. It was a clean sweep of government undertaken with the best intentions, and it would have unforeseen long-term consequences. As the impeachments were taking place in Parliament, on Trinity Sunday, June 8, 1376, a week short of his forty-sixth birthday, the Black Prince died. Even as he lay bedridden, the warring factions of the good Parliament had battled for his support. Indeed, he had been sent a large barrel of gold by Sir Richard Lyons in an attempt to win his support against the Commons. When he refused it, Lyons sent it to the King, who accepted, saying, He has offered us nothing which is not our own. Thus died hope for the English, was the sad verdict of Thomas Walsingham, following the death of the Black Prince. And indeed it felt to many in 1376 that when Prince Edward died, England had lost the last of its great heroes. The Black Prince had been behind what many Englishmen ranked as the greatest victories their realm had ever known, Crécy, Poitiers, Nahera, and the sack of Limoges. His body was buried with elaborate military ceremony. His will had requested that he be buried at Canterbury beside Thomas Becket, rather than at Westminster. The specifications for the occasion were precise. When our body is taken through the town of Canterbury to the Priory, two destriers covered with our arms, and two men armed in our arms and in our helms, shall go before our body, that is, one with our whole arms of war quartered, and the other with our arms of peace, with badges of ostrich feathers, with four banners of the same suit. Each of those who carry the said banners shall have on his head a hat with our arms. He who wears the arms of war shall have an armed man by him carrying a black pennon with ostrich feathers. It was a soldier's passing. His tomb was decked in the symbols of the Holy Trinity, for which he reserved great reverence, and decorated with his armour, symbols of his military power, and his motto, Ich dien, I serve. In his later life, blighted by illness, the prince had become morbid, depressed by the fact that his warrior's spirit could not overcome his fragile flesh. His will requested that a French poem be inscribed around his tomb in Canterbury Cathedral, warning others of the same perils. Such as thou art, sometime was I. Such as I am, such shalt thou be. I thought little on the hour of death, so long as I enjoyed breath. But now a wretched captive am I, deep in the ground, lo, here I lie. My beauty great is all quite gone, my flesh is wasted to the bone. The loss of the prince struck a devastating blow to Edward's regime. With his death he catapulted to the centre of English politics the last of the Plantagenets, a nine-year-old boy called Richard of Bordeaux. New King, Old Problems Richard of Bordeaux appeared before the assembled lords and commons in the good Parliament. Several hundred men cheered for him and demanded that he be given titles and honours. On every side sat sumptuously dressed magnates, solemn bishops and abbots, merchants decked in fine robes and jewellery, and knights of the shire looking on expectantly. There were old, wise, and rich men in abundance. It could not have escaped young Richard that all these people were clamouring for him and him alone. For the new heir to the throne, it was an extraordinary way to begin public life. 
This was June 25, 1376, just over two weeks since his father's death. The good Parliament was still in full session, attempting to purge the King's household and bring to justice the men it blamed for mismanaging the war. Sir Peter de la Mer courageously took the fight for reform directly to John of Gaunt. With the Black Prince's death, that battle was being played out against new and burning questions. What would happen when the old king followed his eldest son into the grave? Who would guarantee the security of the Plantagenet succession? With Prince Edward dead, as his eldest surviving son, Richard of Bordeaux, was the next in line to inherit the crown, that much was clear. What was not clear was whether he would be allowed to do so in peaceable fashion. The child was nine years old. It was virtually certain, with Edward III reduced to gibbering infirmity by a series of strokes, that the future king's reign would begin with a long minority, of the sort that had been seen only once in England since the Norman invasion. Every student of English royal history would have recalled that Henry III's minority had been blighted by a French invasion and a long and damaging civil war. They might also recall that Edward III's much briefer minority between 1327 and 1330 had been dominated by the grasping and equally disastrous regency of Roger Mortimer and Queen Isabella. It was widely feared, particularly in London, that John of Gaunt had designs on the throne for himself. This was unfair. Gaunt, although he was an unsubtle politician and a ruthlessly ambitious magnate, almost certainly had no intention of usurping the young heir to his father's crown. He was at his core a loyalist. But this was not the perception among many of those in Westminster in 1376. The Commons had demanded that young Richard of Bordeaux be brought before them, in order that, as the official records put it, the Lords and Commons might see and honour Richard as true heir apparent to the realm. Anxiety and desperation must have fairly hummed in the air as Richard appeared before his future subjects. While he stood before them, Simon of Sudbury, the sixty-year-old Archbishop of Canterbury, rose to address the Lords and Commons together. The King, he told them, had briefed him to speak on his behalf. According to parliamentary records, he said, Although the very noble and powerful prince my lord Edward, recently Prince of Wales, was departed and called to God, nevertheless the prince was as if present, and not in any way absent, because he had left behind him such a noble and fine son, who is his exact image or true likeness. As Sudbury brought his speech to a close, a great clamour erupted from the commons, which asked, with one voice that it might please the king to grant to Richard the name and honour of Prince of Wales, just as his father had done. They were told that such was the king's prerogative alone, but Richard, like the men around him, would have known that he would soon be raised to all the titles and honours that befitted his new station. Almost a year later to the day, stupefied by a series of strokes, barely able to speak, Edward III died, alone but for a priest. Thomas Walsingham wrote that Alice Perrers took the rings from his fingers before taking leave of him for the last time. One of his last public appearances was before a deputation of Londoners, who came up the River Thames to his palace at Sheen, and found him trussed up in cloth of gold, and physically pinned into his chair in order to be held upright. The King slipped finally out of consciousness on June 21, 1377, following a reign of just over fifty years. He was sixty-four years old. The old king was laid to rest on Sunday, July 5th, in one of the most lavish funerals ever held in England. The procession lasted three days and cost thousands of pounds. Almost the whole of London and Westminster was draped in black cloth and lit by thousands of solemn torch-bearers, dressed all in black. Archbishop Sudbury presided as the dead king's body, draped in red samite emblazoned with a white cross, was placed inside a coffin and interred in Westminster Abbey next to his wife, Queen Philippa. During the interment a knight entered the Abbey church and presented a sword and shield as an offering. At Windsor another ceremonial sword was placed above the royal stall in St. George's Chapel. Then the fortunes of England and the Plantagenet family were catapulted into the hands of his grandson. The whole country looked to Richard. His coronation took place just over a week later, on Thursday, July 16th. 
The crowds who had come to London for the solemnities of the royal funeral now watched as the city was transformed into a throbbing hub of brightness and hope. As Adam Horton, the Bishop of St. David's, would proclaim in an address to Parliament, Richard had been sent to England by God, just as Christ had been sent to earth to redeem the people. The streets of the capital were so packed that during the royal procession from the Tower to Westminster on the evening before the coronation, John of Gaunt had to cut his way through the throng with his sword. In Cheapside, the main east-west thoroughfare through the city, a conduit flowed with wine for three days, a dark purple river that led up to a large mock castle at the western end of the street. In the turrets of the castle sat little girls of Richard's own age, dressed all in white as if to represent the sense of rebirth and purification that came with the accession of the first new king for half a century. Richard, at the heart of the procession, soaked up the adulation of the masses. Next to him rode his tutor and father figure Sir Simon Burley, the loyal soldier who had fought alongside his father in Aquitaine, who had served at Nahera and during the sack of Limoges. Richard had known him all his life, and he had been closely involved in the young king's upbringing for several years before the coronation. He would have prepared the prince for the ceremonial process of his coronation, but he could not have prepared him for the sheer noise and excitement with which the people clamoured in the street. At ten years old Richard stood before all the people of his realm and swore a solemn oath to uphold the laws and customs of his ancestors, protect the church, do justice to all, and uphold the laws that his people had justly and reasonably chosen. Then he was presented to the whole abbey for its acclamation. This was a reversal of the usual process by which the people would cheer in advance of the oath-swearing. It was arranged to make the clear point that this was a king who acceded by the right of his family to rule, and not by the election of the masses. Once the cheers had subsided, Richard, concealed from the eyes of the congregation by a golden cloth, was anointed with holy chrism. Oil touched his bare skin at the hands, chest, shoulders, and head, sanctifying and separating him from all other men. He was handed the sceptre, sword, and ring of kingship before being crowned by Archbishop Sudbury and the Earl of March. It was an awe-inspiring experience for a young boy to go through, and it planted in Richard's mind the certain knowledge that he was a king by right of God. He was carried out of the abbey raised aloft on Sir Simon Burley's shoulders. There was such a commotion around him that one of his shoes fell off. This was characteristic of the experiences of his early years. On public occasion after public occasion he was cheered and honoured as a Christ-like saviour of a troubled people. There were repeated calls from the kingdom's great men for obedience to the new king. The day after the coronation Bishop Brinton of Rochester gave a sermon demanding that everyone obey Richard for the safety of the whole kingdom. In his household he was constantly cast in his father's image, surrounded by his father's old companions, and exhorted to become the king that the Black Prince had never been allowed to be. Yet cheerful as the realm was to have a new king, it also had immediate and desperate requirements of him. England was in acute peril, plagued by an escalating crisis of security. As the chronicler known as the Monk of Evesham wrote, In this year there was a complete collapse of peace negotiations with France for the French refused to keep the peace unless an agreement highly favourable to themselves could be reached. During this same period the Scots burned the town of Roxburgh. Afterward the French landed in the Isle of Wight on the 21st of August. When they had looted and set fire to several places, they took a thousand marks as ransom for the island. Then they returned to the sea and sailed along the English coastline continuously until Michaelmas. They burned many places and killed all the people they could find. It is believed that at this time more evils were perpetrated than had been caused by enemy attacks on England during the previous forty years. During a battle with French pirates at Lewis, one Frenchman was captured, who on the point of death declared, If the English had made the Duke of Lancaster their king, they would not now be invaded by Frenchmen as they are. What could a boy king do against this? The answer was very little. England required an arrangement that would allow the realm to govern itself while its saviour grew up from a child into a fully formed king. The natural precedent to follow would have been from the reign of Henry III, 
when William Marshall had been appointed to the regency, but the only natural candidate for such a post in 1377 was John of Gaunt. Although he had been reconciled with the Commons in Parliament, there was still a great deal of suspicion of his motives and abilities. In February 1377, when he had intervened at the trial in London of his protégé, the radical scholar John Wycliffe, Gaunt's heavy-handed behaviour had prompted riots in the capital. His capacity to vex and frighten made him an unpromising candidate for an official role in the new government. Instead, England settled on a fudge. From his coronation onward, Richard was held to be ruling as a king in his own right. A pretense of competence was established. A series of continual councils of twelve great men was appointed to advise him, but writs and charters were given under Richard's own seal. Conciliar government was carried out in his name, but power was also exercised from his household. The men closest to him were former retainers and servants of the Black Prince, such as Sir Simon Burley, Sir Guichard d'Angle, raised to the earldom of Huntingdon after the coronation, and Aubrey de Vere. It was by no means a perfect arrangement, but the south coast was in danger, and in France and Aquitaine there were severe threats to the two most important English coastal outposts, Calais and Bordeaux. To defend the realm and the dwindling parcels of Plantagenet lands on the continent, it was imperative that government begin to function fast. One pressing need was to find enough money to fight the French. Raising taxation from the whole country was vital. Unfortunately, it was also the route to one of the most extraordinary outbursts of popular rage that England would ever experience. England in Uproar The Great Revolt, or the Peasants' Revolt as it is more commonly called by historians, was England's first great popular rebellion. It began as a series of village riots in Essex and Kent during late May and early June 1381. As royal tax inspectors and judges moved around the counties, inspecting low returns from a poll tax levied in Parliament in November 1380 and collected the following spring, they were met with violent resistance. Royal officials were murdered, and the sheriffs of Essex and Kent were snatched in kidnap raids. As the resistance movement built momentum, bands of mounted rebels gathered and began to tour the major towns of Kent, looting and burning official records in Maidstone, Rochester and Canterbury. They were drawn from the ordinary folk of the villages, and led by the better sort of yeomen, parish priests, village constables and well-off farmers. They targeted lawyers, royal servants and particularly odious local landowners, but they also acted with restraint and some political sense. An order was issued, according to one chronicler, that no one who dwelled near the sea for the space of twelve leagues should come with them, but keep the coasts of the sea from enemies. By mid-June the Kent rebels had a leader, Watt Tyler. It was rumoured later that he had served in the French wars, but of his real biography we know almost nothing. He was aided by John Ball, a renegade Yorkshire priest with links to the movement known as the Lollards, who were highly critical of church authority and dogma. Ball had been imprisoned on numerous occasions by Archbishop Sudbury for preaching heretical and seditious sermons outside churches on Sundays. He used catchy rhymes and popular slogans to spread a vision of a classless society in which lordship was abolished and lands and goods were held in common. His most famous couplet was, When Adam delved and Eve span, who then was the gentleman? As the Kent and Essex rebels sacked their counties, they were also in touch with groups of disaffected Londoners. The city of London had been riven by faction and feuds for much of the 1370s. There were multiple hatreds between rival merchant groups and guilds, between native merchants and foreign traders, between supporters and opponents of the Oxford scholar John Wycliffe, who was in many ways the father of Lollardy, and more generally between the apprentice classes and their rich masters. At the invitation of the Londoners, on June 11th the rebels set out for the capital. The Kent rebels approached from the south-east via Greenwich and Blackheath. The Essex rebels made their way from the north-east via Mile End. Throughout this time Richard II was at Westminster surrounded by his household advisers, several earls and merchants, 
and a number of his family members, including his mother Joan, his half-brothers Thomas and John Holland, and his cousin John of Gaunt's young son Henry Bolingbroke. During the early stages of the rebellion, the king's advisers sent men-at-arms into the shires to attempt to bully the rebels into submission. They were chased away, and some of them were killed. Belatedly, the government realized the scale of the uprising. Archbishop Sudbury panicked and resigned his position as Chancellor, giving back the Great Seal. The royal party moved to the Tower of London for their own safety. They sent word to the rebels to meet them. On Wednesday, June 12th, the Kent rebels, numbering in the tens of thousands, reached Blackheath, where they camped overnight. At one point on that evening, the fourteen-year-old king sailed down the Thames for a conference with his people at Rotherhithe, but his advisers panicked when they saw the size of the crowds on the riverbank, and the party turned back. This infuriated Wat Tyler and his men, who claimed that they had risen in loyalty to their king to purge his court of evil counsellors. The commons had a watchword among themselves in English, wrote the anonymal chronicler. It was, With whom hold you? And the response was, With King Richard and the true commons, and those who could not or would not so answer were beheaded. Denied their moment to parley with their adored monarch, the rebels flew into a rage and burned Southwark that evening. The next day, Thursday, June 13th, they convinced sympathisers in London to lower the drawbridge at London Bridge. They piled, howling with delight, into the city and paraded down the Strand, the moneyed suburb that lay between London and Westminster, which was dotted with palaces and mansions. The finest palace of all was the Savoy, John of Gaunt's magnificent London residence. The rebels piled over the walls, set fire to the outbuildings, and went about destroying the palace. Rebels ran through the building, smashing everything they could, and dragging fine possessions out to a bonfire in the street. The palace was destroyed, with barrels of gunpowder found in the cellars. That same day the temple, the lodgings and power base of many of the capital's lawyers, was ransacked by Londoners, and piles of legal records were burned in the street. Prisons were sprung across the city, while notorious crooks who had been living at liberty were hunted down and beheaded by kangaroo courts. Flames licked the evening sky as a day of targeted rioting ended in debauchery and drunkenness, with pillaged wine barrels rolled into the street and broken open. On that first night Richard stood dolefully on a turret in the tower and gazed down at the ragtag army of his subjects who had camped out in the fields below the fortress walls. As London burned, he and his advisers were effectively terrified prisoners in the tower. Although there had been similar risings in Europe during the second half of the 14th century, the Jacquerie in France in 1358 is the worst example, the king's advisers had been caught quite by surprise at the ferocity with which the ordinary people of London and the southeast had risen. Disorder was also breaking out as far afield as York and Somerset, with some of the worst taking place in Cambridgeshire, Hertfordshire, Suffolk, and Norfolk. England, which had only four years ago risen almost as one to acclaim its new king, seemed now to be descending into a godless anarchy. What had driven the people of England to such paroxysms of rage? On one level it was very easy to say. Three poll taxes had been levied between 1377 and 1381, a revolutionary experiment in taxing the wealth of communities that had never been taxed directly before. Instead of property and land being assessed, a levy was laid on people themselves. Although the second of the three poll taxes had allowed for graded payments according to social status, with the rich paying most and the poor least, the first and third levies were flat rate and obviously regressive taxes, which hit the badly off far harder than the wealthy. At first the taxes had provoked disgruntlement, but this swiftly turned to outright fury as commissioners appointed to investigate widespread evasion were accused of heavy-handed tactics. The poll taxes tapped a deeper root of resentment that had been building in England's towns and villages since the middle of the century. The Black Death had returned again to England in 1379 in an epidemic that eventually lasted for four years. The effect of this, coming on top of the first wave in 1348 and 1349, and the children's plague during 1361 and 1362, 
was to cause the entire structure of medieval society to creak and change. Labor, once abundant in an overpopulated realm, became scarce and expensive. To combat the threat to landowners, Edward III's government had passed restrictive labor legislation, setting limits to wages and punishing anyone who took or received more than the legal day rate for anything from mowing fields and reaping crops to mending roofs and shoeing horses. These laws were enforced by local legal commissioners, many of whom were drawn from the same ranks of wealthy county gentry that benefited from the labor laws. They punished the better-off peasants who paid their neighbors to work as well as the workers whom they convicted of taking illegal wages. There was abundant work for lawyers and crown officials in ensuring that county elites retained their privileged position. Men who served on labor commissions often also served as sheriffs, MPs, and justices of the peace. There was a real sense that a whole corrupt political class was oppressing ordinary Englishmen. Serfdom was dying out as an institution in the late 14th century, but it seemed to many of those who rebelled in 1381 that it was giving way to a new and equally oppressive system by which lawyers and justices kept the rural poor in just as deep a misery as they had suffered when they were bonded to the land. Poll taxes that hit the poor hardest, labour legislation that prevented them from earning a reasonable wage, the hideous fear of plague, a miserably failing war in which families based in Essex and Kent experienced at close hand the dangers of French pirate fleets patrolling the Channel, general fear that the young king who was supposed to be England's saviour was being corrupted by evildoers in his household. This all was sufficient in 1381 to kindle a rebellion that shook England to 